With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This is Backroom Politics. And good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It's Tuesday, which means it is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell, as they do every week, joining me from New York City. She is the former campaign attorney for the Hillary Clinton presidential run of 2016 in Ohio. She's now a bar certified lawyer in the Garden State of New Jersey and the Empire State of New York. She is Sharmila Chari. Hello, Sharmila. Hello, Justin. FYI, I was and, a bar certified attorney back then, too. Oh, well, yeah, but it's not as cool as being New York and New Jersey. Ohio's kind of dull. Anyway, joining us from the treasure coast of the sunshine state of Florida, he is the man we know as Admiral Ken Carradine. Admiral Ken, greetings. Hello, Justin. Hello, Justin. How are you? Doing great. And joining us from Northern Virginia, as he does every Tuesday, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count for presidents. He is longtime Senate staffer and Washington insider, Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. And of course, running the board from an undisclosed location somewhere on Cape Cod is our associate producer, Audrey Howerton. Let's get to the big, the big news stuff. Uh, oh, wait a minute. Just popping up in time. He is a longtime Democratic political operative and former Biden political advisor. He is the man that we know as Dan Lipner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. Hello, Justin. And by the way, I only meet with the Russians for opposition research, never about, uh, you know, adoptions or anything like that. Just but th- but that happens research. all the time. That happens all the time. <laughs> Hey, uh, listen, we got a lot to talk about. Let's start with the big news coming out of your old neck of the woods, Sharmila, which I'm glad you're here. We're talking about the big midterms and the big focus on the special election happening in the 12th Congressional District of Ohio, which covers several counties outside of Columbus. Excuse me, for those who don't know, uh, there is a special election going on in the in the Ohio 12th Congressional District. This is a district that has been held by the Republican for at least 35 years that I know of. Uh, it is something that the political reports uh, rate as a plus seven for Republicans. But as of the latest polls, as late as two hours ago, the Democrats, who is the, uh, um, I'm sorry, Frank, uh, the Franklin County Recorder, I knew it was one of the counties, the Franklin County Recorder, a 30-something, a Danny O'Connor, is now up by, in some instances, two or three points, 
by Republican stalwart and Trump copycat Senator Troy Balderson. It is an interesting race. All eyes are on this race because Troy Balderson is kind of Trump's guy. Uh, Sharmila, I want to start with you. You know Ohio. You know Ohio politics. How shocked are you that the 12th Congressional District would be this close, let alone be points up possibly, although within margin, points up for a Democrat in that district? It's not entirely shocking. Um, You know, this district includes parts of Columbus, which is obviously a much more liberal and affluent part of the state, and it includes a lot of rural parts such as Mansfield and Delaware and Lincoln counties. So it is, you know, much like the state of Ohio itself, you'll find a lot of these congressional districts, including the one um, where I worked for the Clinton campaign, really are kind of these mini microcosms of sort of Ohio in and of themselves because you have a mix of large rural swaps with, you know, more urban, liberal, progressive centers. So, you know, also located within the district. So in that sense, you do have some parts, you know, for example, southeastern Ohio, close to Kentucky, that are, you know, pretty ruby red. But any district, I think, that's gonna, that abuts a urban center in Ohio is going to have a lot of purple in it. So I don't think it's necessarily shocking that this this election is, you know, pretty tightly contested at this point. I think the fact that this district had been, you know, solidly red and reliably red for the last, I think, 12 years shows you the power of the Democratic resistance movement and how effective the Democrats and the progressives have been at really turning out voters and really underscoring the importance of getting out to vote in this election. That's what I think is more impressive. Well, let me go. Let me go with you, uh, Dan Lipner. Do you do you see it the same way? I got to tell you something. I'm I am truly stumped that this. I mean, you know, going off what Sharma was saying, Dan Lipner, this is a Republican district that literally has been in Republican hands 35 years at minimum. Uh, I mean, you literally would have had to botch a campaign or be unaware of the political fallout of what's going on politically in D.C. to not know that this is going on. This is a surprise to everybody, Dan Lipner. Well, in part, so there are a couple things at play here. Uh, one, Charmel is absolutely right, that this is a, a Republican district. However, it's also worth noting the Republicans have done a good job of redistricting uh, Democrats out of strong Democratic seats for the most part. So even this district, while while a Republican seat, had to carve in some Democrats to take them away from other districts. So the problem with that is you take seats and you make them less strong. While you have a, a lean Republican district, as this is, there are less Republicans there that are sort of thing. Enter Donald Trump, who managed – manages to pull people away from the middle and push them toward the other side. So hence the benefit of a Democratic operation simply running against Donald Trump, as well as the actual motivated Democrats who tend not to show up in off-year elections 
who may actually show up this year because the stakes are so high because the president is so bad. But, Alan Moore, when we look at the numbers, I mean, this is with the exception of maybe Franklin County, which is closest to the uh, moderate or even blue parts of Columbus. This is largely educated suburban uh, uh, upper middle middle class people in this district. Did the Republicans get caught sleeping on this one? Oh, I don't think they got caught sleeping. I think they've been nervous about this one for some time. Um, uh, I, I was intrigued. I think, you mentioned in, I, I think you mentioned at the get-go that, that this was rated as a, as a plus seven by the Cook Report. So for people who don't know, Charles Cook is, a, is sort of a political savant. He looks at, at, at races all over the country. He watches changes, the kind of changes that, that Dan just talked about, about redistricting and how that changes the makeup um, uh, of, of particular races. When you, when, you, when you gerrymander, you move people from one party into another district. You still try to keep that district safe, but not as safe. And Cook rated this as a plus seven for Republicans. Plus seven is not plus 17. Um, it's not plus 22, it's plus seven. And then you have the, the, the results of the last year and a half where in, uh, in special elections all over the country, the, the tide has turned and Democrats are consistently showing, you know, five to 10 to 12 per, uh, points better for a variety of reasons. Um, the, 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 the higher turnout among, uh, among Democrats, the lower turnout in some cases by uh, Republicans, independents shifting. I mean, there's change in the land, and the Republican Party is well aware of this. They're all definitely afraid of what's going to happen um, in November, and this is Alan. kind of a, uh, an early look. So they, they have but not Alan, been asleep, Alan, let me, let me, but that doesn't mean me they can get their outcome but let they me let me jump in on this one and ask you, we look at the results. I mean, if you look in Marion County, uh, basically the entire district outside of Franklin County, Trump wins those counties by anywhere from 55% to as high as 75% in some areas. Uh, one would think that being pro-Trump would be pro-Ohio uh, 12. That doesn't seem to be the case, and it seems almost to be a hindrance uh, to, the, to the Republican Senator Balderson. I mean, I don't know that it's a hindrance. It's just that, you know, we see this, we see this coastal divide and we see this urban-rural uh, divide with uh, – with the suburbs um, sitting there um, moving a little bit back and forth. And so, you know, I, I see this not as a, as a plus 30 district uh, for Trump. I see this as a plus seven district for Republicans in a very challenging environment. And just to make things even more challenging, um, the president decided that this would be a good week in Ohio 
to attack <laughs> LeBron James um, on the occasion of his announcing the his own personal participation and contribution to creating a special school in Akron, Ohio, where he grew up. They like LeBron James in Ohio, and 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 I think a lot of people like him. It's across the board, and they wonder why does the president keep picking these fights with the wrong people at the wrong time? You know, hey. this is going to be a close one, I think. And and every every different everything matters. Every tweet can make a difference. So, Admiral Ken, everybody's looking at Ohio 12. Some of the media are saying this is the true looking glass into November to what could happen as far as uh, a failed resistance or a true blue wave. Do you buy that hype? Um, I, I think that the better part of the last 18 months has taught me to um, keep my expectations where the possible demise of things the president is doing uh, in check. Uh, I think it might be a, um, I mean, a, uh, I don't know. I don't know. And not, it's certainly not to, to fall into the category of an omen of things to come, but it, it might be you know, evidence of the fact that um, that the poll numbers that we're seeing in places like CNN and MSNBC and arguably not on Fox News, where the president is losing ground with, you know, with, with most Americans, uh, it might lend some credence to that. Uh, but I got to admit, uh, I'll be I'll be quite surprised if the Democrats pull it out in Ohio, um, and not at all surprised if, uh, if the Republican wins. Um, um, so I, I don't know. I think it's I think it's too early to tell. I think you know not not being up on the, on, the, on the political races as well as much as I probably should be coming on the air uh, today. Uh, I'd be interested in what races are taking place later on this summer. I think the closer you get to the midterms, and depending on where they are, if they are true battleground states, not places that have been here before blood red, I think those are much better indicators of what we may possibly see. Charmolette, you know, looking at this race and then also looking at the surprise that's happening, uh, in uh, in in uh, in the Pennsylvania special elections, right now in special elections, it seems that Trump's going over two. Alan, check my math on that. Is that about right? Uh, I don't know uh, that that's accurate. Uh, I mean, you have Doug yeah, Jones, or Doug Jones, sure. more. I'll, I'll, I'll defer. I'm not in a position to correct, much as I would like to. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> bottom line here is. In a general election, like what we're seeing in the special election, what we saw in Pennsylvania, what we're seeing in Ohio, are the president's coattails as strong in the general as they seem to be in what we're seeing in uh, the uh, primaries? I think I understand your question. Um, so I think that you, you've seen a weakening of the Trump effect over over the course of his term. So at the beginning, when you think about the special elections that happened right after the 2016 election, there was the Georgia 6th, the Kansas 4th, and I think uh, Montana, the Montana at-large. Those were all, you know, really rallying cries for the resistance saying, you know, 
we need to reverse this this red trend that's been sweeping our country. And so all this money went to John Ossoff and to um, – oh, my gosh, I can't remember his name the, – the fellow in Kansas and uh, the fellow in Montana. Sorry, I'm <coughs> blaming my cold for my, my waning memory right now. But you saw all this Democratic effort, time, and money go into these races, and the Republicans won pretty handily in all three. Now I think that the Democrats have shifted strategy. The progressives have really had time to let the presidency, the Trump presidency play out. And just as he's been president for longer, the people who voted for him, who are in that kind of mushy middle, who just didn't like either candidate in 2016, have started becoming disillusioned with him. And so that's where I think you've seen this shift recently into you know something like the Doug Jones election, which granted was about much more than Trump, but was somewhat a referendum on the president since he endorsed Roy Moore pretty strongly. And then you saw it with, again, Connor Lamb. And now you might be seeing it again here in Ohio. And it hasn't helped the Republicans that they've put these sort of, you know, mediocre, not inspiring candidates, you know, forward in the form of Rick Saccone and now um, the fellow in Ohio, Troy Balderson, sorry. Right. So I think that the, I think you're seeing the the coattail effect the coattail effect of President Trump diminished. What I think is interesting is, to your point, the fact that he still has a really really hot like strong um, influence on the Republican primaries, and I think you're going to see maybe what happened around 2006 when when the Tea Party and these sort of right wing party these really right wing movements came out and all these right-wing candidates like Sharon Angle were winning primaries, but then you know losing in the general to Democrats. So you might get a repeat of that now. But here, here's the problem. Here's the problem I think the Republicans are trying to cope with, Alan. You know, look at uh, there are some really good candidates that the Republicans could, that the Republicans have invested and truly believe that they can win in general elections. Uh, I give you uh, the incumbent governor of Kansas. I give you uh, Adam Putnam in Florida. Uh, Trump comes in and backs two Trumpite type candidates, gets his base to put them out, but all indications are that neither one of these guys can win in a general election in either Kansas or Florida. How does the party or can the party? kind of de-conflict this or is it too late well it, it's very obvious that the party has no capacity to divert uh, the president even when all the, the party and the people around the president are urging him to stay away as in the case of the uh, kansas uh, gubernatorial race um he jumped in a couple of days ago and embraced in a big way the the primary opponent of the sitting governor. Um, and we don't know what how how that will play. We will we will learn uh, a little bit more in response to the question you raised earlier about his power within the party and primaries that he's demonstrated it already to no particular good effect. Let's acknowledge. Um, and that could happen again. That's not a guarantee that the Democrats would pick up that seat, but it will certainly put that seat, the, that governorship, into play in a more significant way than 
than anyone was expecting. I mean, this is the kind of disruptive role that he plays, but anytime it, it's almost as though when, when the organized party um, uh, or the, or the group around the president joins together with a single message, he wants to be the, the contrarian and say, nope, my gut says do this. You guys, uh, you guys have gotten this wrong again and again. I'm going with the, I'm going with my gut here. I'm going this, or I'm going to go with my loyalty uh, of, of, of the past or my, just my perception of this guy. Um, look, he's had remarkably good luck, um, way more than any of us ever expected in following his gut uh, to success. But eventually you you run out of, uh, uh, you run out of airstrip here and he's going to start careening and crashing. There's just no, uh, and, and he did as, as he did already, uh, as Sharmila pointed out in, uh, in Alabama, um, by embracing judge Roy Moore, um, at, at the end. And instead of getting behind in a big way early on the sitting Senator from uh, Alabama who replaced Jeff Sessions, um, he's, he he has embraced it appears at the moment this notion that he can save the day he said everybody's talking about about a blue wave how about a red wave well there's only one person in america talking about a red wave one and and, and that's the president you know whether there's a whether at the president whether there's a blue wave or not remains to be seen there's still a lot of indication that there may well be. How how big a wave is it going to be? Is it going to be a tsunami, um, uh, or is it just going to be <laughs> a six foot wave that comes right. in and does a fair amount of damage? But nobody me, except the president has made any reference to the red wave. That's not expected. But the Republican Party has no ability to uh, to divert it. We've seen that again and again. It's also <laughs> worth noting that that there's Go a ahead. Green Party candidate on the ballot here as well. Uh, from of all places, Hell, Michigan. Originally, uh, it'll be interesting to see how that affects the the, the final vote tallies. Uh, because the left, being the left, we are entirely capable of losing a, a race that we could win b- because of uh, our help from the extreme left. <laughs> and Dan, I'm not gonna, I'm not going to disagree with you on that. But uh, you know. Admiral Ken, when we look at the demographics that are in play in Ohio's 12th district, where everybody's kind of looking, I mean, let's be honest, both the RNC and DNC have thrown a ton of money at this one. Uh, I've heard some say that uh, where goes Ohio 12 could be an indication of a lot of Ohio and possibly Pennsylvania They've got similar demographics, similar layouts, similar mindsets. Is there a possibility that we could be seeing a revolt in that Trump kind of voter push in Ohio? Like the voters that said, you know what, he's better than Hillary. Uh, We can he's going to look out for us. He's going to look out for the economy. But are we going to start seeing a revolt of those educated White women, minorities. Is, is that going to come back to roost and haunt? I don't. I, I, don't think, I, I don't think that 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 the votes of those particular segments of the 
demographics are um, are in question. Uh, I think that those particular segments of demographics threw in the towel uh, on Donald Trump in the, in the first year of his presidency. The real question are here is that you know, it's, it's the white, white college educated males. Uh, they're probably the ones I think that everybody is looking at. Um, with, with particular interests. I mean, it, you know, the polling already shows that if, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if you're a person that's white and you've only got a high school and versus a college degree, that you are you're, you're basically supporting Trump in, in numbers in excess of 85 percent. Uh, those numbers start to fall away dramatically when you start, you know, injecting uh, voters who've got uh, college degrees and they've been, been in the professional working world. And, um, and and have been I guess um, globalized um, by by their uh, experience uh, in in that world. So those are the folks that, that, that I think are the ones that are really really uh, going to be a great scrutiny to see where their where their votes fall. If there's going to be a result um, uh, in, amongst those that support Trump, I think it's going to going to um, start there, if you will. Um, you know, women, women, you know, for the most part, you know, with the grabbing of genitals and, and repeated payouts of porn stars, and uh, the the latest that we deal with 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 the basketball uh, King James, the basketball player. Um, I think you know that those votes are done. I mean, he he knows he's not getting those. He's not focused on those. Hence, his comments have not changed. But you got to look at that other group. Dan, I mean Dan Lipner, are the are the soccer moms the big key in this race? I mean I'm looking at the demographics for the district. So uh, at least according to Wikipedia, we're talking about a district that is 87 percent white, five percent black, four percent Asian, three percent Hispanic, less than one percent Native American. Uh, with a median income of $63,000. These sound like folks that the Donald had targeted uh, predominantly as far as the supermajority of the district that he had targeted for his election that may not exactly be benefiting from the president's trade actions, the president's uh, tax cuts, the president's rhetoric in general. So... That's to be seen. The one number I can't get, I don't know if anyone else has, is what businesses predominate are predominantly in the Ohio 12. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and guess uh, that since much of Ohio still has some manufacturing in it, that these are folks that uh, their, their bosses and their employers might not be uh, faring as well as one had hoped. Uh, based on the president's trade agenda. But I, I will defer to somebody else if they have to have that number in front of them. Well, I, I can tell you right now that the, the number that stands out to me, Dan, you know, looking at the demographics, I mean, my numbers are a little bit higher. Uh, we're talking about almost $67,000 median income, which, by the way, is eleven is eleven five over the national median. So this is slightly above what we would consider middle of the road. Uh, you're talking about a predominantly white population, 86.3%. Uh, you've got a educated group there, but 
here's the here are the numbers that are interesting to me is it the whole district district wide Trump carried the district fifty three forty two the interesting part is going to be the um it, it, it's going to be the the women the educated women in this district that seem to have not turned out so much in the Trump election, not so much even in 2012, but seem to be on track to be a huge factor here in this special election. Um, This is going to be an interesting play for a lot of reasons, and we're going to keep our eye on that. Uh, We've got two minutes left in the segment. Alan Moore, I want to go to a question for you. The um, it, John Kasich was on the Sunday talk shows this weekend and was talking about this race in particular. And Governor Kasich basically had a phone call uh, with, uh, uh, with, with Senator Balderson. And when it was announced that uh, Trump was coming to Ohio for a rally, it appears, one, that there was not a lot of coordination, that Balderson's camp kind of went, ah, we're okay, we're good, we got this, thanks anyway. But the Trump campaign came to Ohio regardless, and that Kasich was kind of like, hey, don't be stupid, don't bring him here. Are we going to see a lot more, particularly in the general elections, more pushback from getting the magic touch from Trump? So I think, remember this, I, I believe this was John Kasich's district, was it not? It was. It's probably been remolded a little bit uh, uh, since, uh, but one has to assume that he knows this district really well. And so when, he is, when he's pushing back and saying, eh, I don't know if you want the president in there, it's not some uh, seat of his pants, gut instinct. This is knowledge of those people and the, 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 the pulse of that area and a sense of Ohio. Whether it becomes uh, a pattern is just, I think, going to depend on the circumstances of, of particular races. There are races where the president's presence is very helpful. There's no, deny, there's, there's no denying that, um, as strange as it may seem to some of us, um, but but uh, there are others where it's almost certainly going to be problematic, and then there are those like this where it's going to be different smart people are going to have different opinions. Now, will the president listen if he's asked not to come? Good question. It's it's pretty yeah. awkward. You don't want to get too visible out saying, "Yeah, don't bother, Mr. President," because he might turn on you. And and what you need is the people who support the president president shrinking as that may be and a bunch of other people to vote for you. Yep. We, we got to go. Yeah, yeah. Admiral Ken, 10 seconds. Uh, 41% of the, uh, the folks in that district have got bachelor's degrees or higher. Yeah. US, okay. US, and I'm certain they're all in Delaware County, which is where Columbus is. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. All right. We're going to move on. When we come back, we've got a special guest. Uh, our good friend David Mortlock, former economic security advisor to President Barack Obama, 
Uh, he's going to be joining us because we're going to be talking about sudden sanctions on Iran. This is Backroom Politics, the best political talk show you've never heard of, live on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. here with the best political talk show you've never heard of live from Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics. I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. And joining us on the line right now is our good friend. He is the former White House Economic Security Advisor to then-President Barack Obama. He is now a senior partner with the law firm Wilkie Farr. He is the man that we know as David Mortlock. David, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing well, Justin. How are you? Doing fantastic. Thanks for joining us as always. Hey, David, um, we we heard Monday that uh, the president put out in a statement that uh, the he said, quote, we urge all nations to take such steps to make it clear that the Iranian regime faces a choice, either change its threatening, destabilizing, destabilizing behavior and reintegrate with the global economy 
or continue down a path of economic isolation. This was his remarks after invoking the sanctions that were softened by your old boss in 2012 with the advent of the joint plan of action is what is the logic that as you understand it for instituting new sanctions here or is there logic? Well, I mean, it it is essentially scrapping the JCPOA and that's, that's really what we're talking about here. Um, And I think to, to understand what that means, you've got to remember what the JCPOA was. It wasn't simply a rollback of sanctions. It was the longest international agreement since world war two. It was a comprehensive, hence the name, plan to to put severe restrictions on Iran's ability to develop a nuclear weapon, including uh, including, uh, uh, rampant inspections, including uh, shipping 97% of their weaponizable fuel outside the country, dismantling two-thirds of their centrifuges. Uh, and uh, uh, even even beyond the scope of the uh, of the JCPOA, a um, monitoring agreement to ensure that Iran is complying with the Non-Proliferation Treaty in perpetuity. Uh, in return for that, the P5 plus one, not just the United States, but the P5 plus one and the national and the um, the UN Security Council did ease sanctions that have been put in place specifically to target and put pressure on Iran's nuclear program. So essentially, what does it mean that the president is uh, the president is reimposing those nuclear-related sanctions? Well, it's two things. It means number one, the president is essentially moving the the goalposts here. Uh, you know, the the um, uh, those those sanctions were put in place because of the nuclear program, and now they're being put in back in place uh, with demands for Iran to change its behavior. Um, in, in numerous other areas, including Syria, Yemen, and there's no question those are you know terrible, terrible activities, and Iran is a real problematic actor. Uh, but you know that's exactly why we needed the JCPOA. And the second thing that is happening is the United States is removing uh, the uh, our part of the deal um, for which we traded. Uh, Iran's uh, nuclear actions and the, the downgrading of its nuclear capabilities. And so essentially we're removing the incentives for them to, to stay part of the deal and keep its nuclear program in check. David, were, were these sanctions expected or did this come as a surprise to a lot of the international players that you talked to? Well, I mean, look, we we knew what was coming. We've known what was coming since May 8th. Um, I mean, frankly, if there was any surprise yesterday, it was exactly how, um, you know, uh, (laughs) sort of expected the whole thing was. You know, the president tweeted yesterday, I think, something about, you know, the strongest sanctions ever put in place. Well, you know, he can thank Barack Obama for that because this is almost cookie-cutter uh, reimposition of the sanctions that were in place in in 2013. You know, there's some there's some really marginal uh, changes around the edges, which frankly are only going to be noticed by those of us who stare at this all day every day. Um, so the reality is, it, it's simply rolling back uh, the clock to where we were in 2013. But but I, I guess. Is the concern that these sanctions are in, are in play, that the U.S. is reneging on a deal, backing out of the – or is it the fact – I mean, 
Trump came out and said that if you are doing business in Iran and you expect to do business with the U.S., you got to pick your poison. You want to do business with Tehran or with Washington? Call the ball. Which is the bigger offset here? Well, sure. I mean, that makes for a lovely tweet, but the reality is, you know, what 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 we're doing is using the economic might of the United States to uh, to threaten companies uh, to get them to to do what we want, and and at some point. You know that that really means a loss to the United States. Uh, you know, at what point do we start um, sanctioning major European companies that are employing workers in the United States that are buying U.S. products? Um, you know, we, we risk hurting ourselves as well. And and the way we mitigate that in sanctions programs is we accompany the sanctions by a broad and and concerted diplomatic effort to get other countries to go along with us. And that's exactly what the last administration did for Iran beginning in, in, in 2009, which resulted in an incredibly broad and comprehensive sanctions regime on Iran that got Iran back to the table on the nuclear program. Alan Moore, if you're still with us, Alan Moore is, is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs. Um, right now, the only one who's putting these sanctions into play are the Americans. We are we are getting indications that Russia, China, even the EU are prepared to give the major f- middle finger back to Washington saying, hey, look, you want to do this, that's fine. There's a ton of oil and there's a big economy that we can play with. Doesn't it seem reasonable that the big loser in this whole deal could be the U.S.? Well, okay. So the the key was there, reasonable that it could be the U.S. It absolutely could be. But it isn't necessarily. That's going to depend on the, the behavior that that was just that, that David referred to of whether we start going after uh, European companies, for example, and and if we start pressuring uh, the European governments, I don't know that putting pressure on China or Russia is going to be particular particularly useful um, these days. Um, it is also the case we talked about it last week that the that the Iranian, the Iranian economy has taken a drastic hit since, since May, since the U.S., in effect, unilaterally canceled this agreement. Damage has been done to Iran. Um, obviously, damage has been done to the United States. We've talked about that in the past in terms of do we keep our word? Um, this admittedly was an executive agreement and there were things said back when the, when the deal was put into place, we talked about it on the show that this was the president, this wasn't the Congress, uh, this wasn't the Senate, uh, embracing, uh, a, a, a formal treaty. There were risks to going this road. Um, we've listened to the president's rhetoric, which is so exaggerated and over the top that we shake our heads because there's so many things wrong with, what he's actually said, but as David also said, we were expecting the sanctions to come back around. What we don't know is what Iran will do because Iran still has a deal with with five other parties, which are very important parties who can make a difference. They also need the U.S. to be part of this deal. 
when you when you try to re, uh, limit the ability of Iran to do transactions in uh, in dollars, for example, that's it's very challenging to cause that to happen, but it's also very challenging for others to uh, to have transactions with Iran. So there's none of I, I, you know none of us liked the way the president went about this unilaterally over the top rhetoric significant risks to our diplomacy as well as other U.S. interests on the one hand. On the other hand, um, none of us knows how this is going to play out. Um, it, it, it isn't guaranteed that America is screwing itself. It looks like it, but lots of unknowns here that still have to play out, and not least of all is how the Iranians respond and how the Iranian economy and people respond. There are riots in the streets these days in Iran, um, partly because of uh, economic disruption contributed to by the by the U.S. decision. It is a mess, but, and I certainly David, am not smart enough to know exactly what's going to happen here. David Mortlock, but isn't it logical that that if I mean to me it seems like we're playing a, a very dangerous game of economic chicken as to who could be the stronger economic force in that region. I mean, theoretically, is it possible that uh, the EU and the other signatories to the JCPOA and China and Russia all say, well, we're not going to play this game. You want to put, say, I mean, because Russia and China will say, we've already got tariffs and sanctions on us. Kiss our butt. And the EU said, you've already put tariffs on us. You know what? We'll go play with Tehran, and we'll all make out, and then we're the last one standing when the music stops. Is it fair that this is a dangerous game of economic stability chicken? Well, I think, you know, Alan makes some good points. Is it depends. Um, but I think, that, you know, what Alan, what Alan uh, also demonstrates, what, what his points also demonstrate, is, you know, there are several different ways this could play out. None of them are good. None of them are good. Either we end up in a game of economic chicken, like you describe, uh, where it's like the tariffs. It's a, it's a, it's a spiral downwards where we're sanctioning foreign companies for their business in Iran, um, or um, the sanctions have the effect the administration intends. They get co- all the companies leave Iran, China, India, Turkey, stop buying Iranian oil, uh, and the Iranian economy crashes, at which point, um, you know, the Iranians really uh, have a choice between um, changing their entire uh, philosophy of international affairs, as, as Mike Pompeo suggested, um, or pulling out of the deal and, and restarting their nuclear program um, because they've seen how far that can get you. Um, that, um, apparently, that can get you a meeting with the president um, if, you, uh, if you develop a nuclear weapon. Um, so, you know, and, and the, third, the, third is, the third option is, is, um, is just as bad, which is uh, it's an empty threat. Um, we, we realize we can't actually start sanctioning foreign companies because of the negative impact on us. And then essentially our sanctions lose their bite. Uh, and where we're trying to use them with Russia, North Korea, um, uh, other places uh, where we need our sanctions to create leverage, um, they fail to do so, and our ability to use them really degrades. 
I mean, Admiral Ken, if if the scenario that David Mortlock is pointing out that our sanctions are pretty much rendered useless, does that not become a national security issue as far as our ability to enforce any sort of sanctions, i.e., what we did uh, in the in the uh, in the Gulf? Regarding oil transfers from Iraq and Iran. Well, this this, this, are, this already is a national security issue, and, and I think I think David, hey David, good hearing from you. It's been a while. Um, um, I think he brings up a very important point. Um, but I think that based on the president's behavior towards China and the president's behavior towards the EU uh, with regard to some of the comments he made when he was last over there and his attitude towards NATO. I think you can very much look forward to the fact that um, that, those, that those two bodies are going to be that finger, and that we're going to end up spending uh, a loan on this. Yeah, this does become a national security issue, but it's, it becomes a bigger one because now, to, to another and in full agreement with David, now that the, the Iranians have seen what bluster and uh, building a nuclear weapon with the capability. Uh, to, to reach their neighbors through rocketry can get you. Why should they bash any what, what What's in it for them? I mean, the thing that I that I love about all this is that is that there's this propensity to remove just human behavior from the from the calculus here. We, the president has insulted his uh, his way across half the world, and now we're looking for the people that he just insulted to come back and support him. They're not his. They're not like his poor voters. Okay, they don't care, and and quite frankly, you know, the Europeans. You know, this this came out in uh, one of the previous shows. The Europeans are no longer looking to the U.S. as the leader uh, in in, uh, in world affairs. As a matter of fact, when Germany is Merkel is thrown in the towel. So I think, quite frankly, this is going to come back to haunt us. You know, I was not a real supporter of President Obama when he came up with the uh, the, uh, the Iran agreement, but at the end of the day, I think, quite frankly, what it what it did was it solved uh, one of two problems. One, the nuclear issue. Uh, by moving the goalposts, yeah, it was just uh, right in that we're now trying to stop them from, uh, from, from financing terror uh, and other bad acts in the Middle East. Well, you know what? I think it's a different tool for a different job. Like, you know, David Mortlock, you know, the one, the one thing that strikes me is is the language being used by the administration. You know, we saw Mike Pompeo state on Sunday from his trip to Southeast Asia, quote, they have to behave like a normal country. That's the ask. It's pretty simple. Uh, he also said that there's no evidence of a change in their behavior. We're going to enforce the sanctions. He said that on Monday. It, it, to me, what is their gauge for acting like a normal country? Because to me, there seems to be a conflict between what we're doing with Iran, who by most accounts had been in compliance with the JCPOA. And all, for example, all accounts. Korea, you know, by all accounts, okay. And like North Korea, which basically put two mobile launchers in front of a factory and said, oh, yeah, we're still building missiles. How do they deconflict that? <laughs> well, I don't think they do, right? Uh, I don't think they're worried about deconflicting it, apparently. But does that hurt our credibility in the international community when we want to be 
the big peacemaker, the deal maker, when we can't even do the deals right. Well, of course, right. I mean, the the fact there's no rhyme or reason to this, you know, is is the real problem. And you know, I think I think Admiral Kemp made a great point, which is, you know, there are there are many people that had concerns about the deal when it was first proposed that there there could have been improvements made on the inspection measures, on some of the sunset clauses. You know, that, that there's actually a there's very much a legitimate debate around that. But at the end of the day, once the deal was in place, it, and it, over the last two years, it has worked. Uh, it has extended Iran's breakout period significantly. It has given um, unprecedented access to inspectors to Iran's um, program. Iran has taken verified steps to to hinder its own uh, ability to uh, pursue a nuclear weapon. Um, and so, you know, it 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 has worked. Um, you know, some, something that else you point out, you know, what, what do we do about all this other behavior that, that is really um, problematic from, from Iran? Um, and I think, you know, two points. First of all, you, you don't make a deal like the JCPOA with your friends, right? Uh, you know, as, as President Obama said, the, the ethos of the deal was don't trust, verify. Um, it was premised on the assumption that Iran would try and cheat uh, and that we needed protections in the deal. Um, so we would find that out uh, and could respond um, because, no, Iran cannot be trusted. Um, the, uh, uh, and that, the deal was designed specifically around that. Um, the other point is, you know, we also have sanctions with respect to terrorism. I don't know about you, but I have not been doing business in Iran over the last few years because I'm a U.S. person. Uh, and the United States has maintained uh, broad sanctions on doing business in Iran that have been in place since the 90s because of its support to international terrorism, uh, because of its human rights abuses. All those sanctions remained in place, um, including right. I- including the threat of secondary sanctions against foreign companies who were doing business with those in Iran engaged in support for international terrorism. So, you right. know, it, it, I know I know nuance does not find sort of pride of place in um, in this White House's tweets, but uh, you know, it, it is a gross simplification of of the Iran policy to suggest it's uh, you know it, it, it's all or, or nothing. Uh, David, Justin. We, yeah, oh yeah, go ahead, Alan Moore, real quick. Yeah, I just, I just, I, I, I wanted to also reemphasize the, the, the point I made earlier, though, as we, as we think about, gee, why Iran can just hook up with the, uh, um, with China, Russia, um, France, UK, uh, EU, um, and go on about their business. They can't. Why? They are in serious economic trouble. The, the. The Iran currency has lost half, 50%, half of its value in the, in the last three months. It has got serious, difficult challenges. Now, I just mentioned that it's not like the U.S. pulls out and nothing else changes. When the U.S. pulls out, um, it does have impacts. And now what I, it, it, what's really hard to figure out is so Iran is trying to figure out domestically what does it do when there's this massive economic disruption that it cannot control? You know, we say, hey, Iran's now going to buy uh, all, all of its commercial airlines from Airbus and buy it with what? Um, a currency that's, got, that's lost half of its value? It, it's got serious challenges. 
They hate the fact, they absolutely hate the fact that the U.S. reneged on a deal, and they hate the fact that the U.S. says, you've got to grow up and act like a normal country, and you've got to make other changes. I mean, they just resist like we would if somebody was trying to squeeze us that way. But having said that, they can't ignore the internal economic disruption that all this yeah, creates. But, I don't know yeah, but, what that. I don't know what they'll do about that. They may. They may just say we're going to start um, re, re, uh, cranking on the centrifuges again. I don't know, but it's yeah, but, not. But, but as Alan, though it's simply a matter of pivoting. They can't just and, pivot. Alan, Alan, and David. You know, one of the one of the ideas that I've heard from folks in the oil industry, not, not here, but people that uh, monitor the oil markets is because I, I understand your point and that's, and that's, and that's definitely a, a huge point to look at, but I've heard a couple of economists tell me that it would not be out of the norm. Whereas we're using the dollar versus the Iranian currency, the dollar's the benchmark. Is there a possibility that if they really wanted to get creative, even though the currency was bad, could they use their extensive oil supply as a source of currency? A oil for planes, oil for machinery, oil for food. Is that a possibility? David Mortlock to you first and then <laughs> No, not really. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this this is where it gets really complicated. So, you know, first of all, keep in mind that e- even even before yesterday, uh, the U- Iran could not get access to dollars because the vast majority of dollar transactions clear through U.S. banks. And as we said, uh, there is a broad embargo on U.S. persons providing services to Iran. So no right. dollars. Uh, um, so really what we're talking about is the ability of foreign companies to do business in Iran without facing the risk of being sanctioned by the United States. Um, and, you know, oil, oil is a great example, right? So, you know, the, the purchase of or acquisition of, of petroleum, petroleum products from Iran is sanctionable. So any company engaged in that, providing insurance, providing shipping for that, could be sanctioned by the United States starting in November. Um, and, you know, look, there are, some, there are some technicalities to it. Certain countries can get exceptions for that if they, uh, if they are found to be significantly reducing their purchase of, of Iranian oil. Uh, but, you know, over the next few months, this is where we really find out whether we end up in an in a economic um, uh, you know, game of chicken, as you said. I think that's absolutely a great analogy. You know, if, if if countries like China, like India, like Turkey don't decide to start reducing their purchases of Iranian oil and say, screw it, we don't need the exception, you know, torpedoes be damned, we end up in a position starting on November 5th where the United States has to decide whether it's going to start sanctioning those companies for importing that oil. But, Alan Moore, doesn't that create a, a dangerous domino effect from a commercial standpoint? It could. I completely agree with David, though. He, we don't know. We've embarked on this little, uh, on this little journey, and and we have decisions to make. These other countries have decisions to make. Private businesses have decisions to make. Usually, in times of significant uncertainty, where risk is elevated, people get cautious. People get conservative companies, 
uh, get, get cautious and conservative. Countries, leaders, they roll the dice. They take their chances. The problem for Iran right now is because the, their economy is in, in the tailspin. Um, they're, they're, like, they're, they're like most uh, countries and most politicians, uh, sort of home country first. Um, and uh, they can talk tough and be nasty and throw, throw tough language around and so on. But if the people don't, can't get bread, can't get, uh, can't get petroleum, can't get gasoline and, 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 uh, and can't get electricity, uh, then that, that's going uh, to overwhelm everything else. On your hey. question of, you know, can't they just swap oil for planes? That's, what, that's, that's how it works. It's just that we use a currency in between. So you sell, you, you get a currency, you take that currency and you buy. Um, dollars are out of the mix, but um, euros um, uh, uh, presumably are in the mix. That would be probably the second choice. Um, and, and, but it's just not that simple. Right. And even though hey. the value of their oil hasn't declined, the value of their currency has been declined. Right. Hey, uh, by the way, we've got breaking news out of Washington, the, which lead into my next series of questions. Ironically, uh, the, it is AP is reporting that the Trump administration has signed off and is uh, headstrong on going ahead with tariffs on $16 billion of Chinese imports starting on August 23rd. So uh, with that being in place now, we're going to see this go through david mortlock are we in a trade war with china uh we are definitely in a trade war with china um china announced uh just this week another 60 billion dollars uh in in tariffs on u.s products that they're considering uh there's a list of 200 billion dollars in additional products um, that the U.S. Uh, is considering sanction, uh, uh, tar- imposing tariffs upon um, for for China Chinese imports, um, and you know it, it's hard to see how it simply stops there. So um, I think uh, we we are in the um, the mutual <laughs> mutual spiral um, of a trade war, and this is why, uh, despite the president's assurances, trade wars do not end well. You know, David, one of the one of the areas that that Trump won on was manufacturing and exporting manufactured goods. It should be noted that China is, at least for the past few years, has been the largest customer of Boeing for commercial aircraft. If they go through with this, what is to stop China? from going to Airbus or even putting R&D in production and creating an aircraft of their own and causing layoffs and economic problems for those people who put Trump into place. Well, I think they could absolutely do that, right? And there's much more. We're already seeing um, farmers in the Midwest suffer gravely um, because of uh, Chinese tariff on soybeans and other agricultural products. Um, you know, we've now got the um, uh, you know the the su- supposedly fiscal conservative administration um, um, proposing a 12 billion dollar bailout for farmers that have been uh, have been hurt by Trump's tariffs. So um, you know I think 
we've seen a lot of the president's supporters say, yes, there's a little bit of economic pain now, but it's going to be uh, all for the best. Uh, but I haven't seen any any proposal on how we actually get out of this spiral. But David, David first, and then uh, Alan Moore. One of the one of the notes I've seen off of uh, the Chinese news wires is that when trading for the yuan, the Chinese government is now expecting a twenty percent deposit on large acquisitions on yuan uh, currency. Is that a sign that a there's a dangerous fluctuation in the uh, in the value of the yuan, particularly versus the dollar. Two, is that a sign that China might be cracking, that Trump might be doing the right thing? David Mortlock. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, look, I think, I think, funnily enough, I think China and, and Donald Trump see the world in very similar terms, right? In that everything is part of one giant big negotiation. Um, and you know this is this is what's dangerous, right? Is is we saw, um, you know, the president give China relief on on the ZTE enforcement case. You know, ZTE engaged in uh, really, and and also Alan will be familiar with with the, this is ZTE engaged in in um, gross violations of of U.S. export controls, uh, sending U.S. technology to Iran um, and North Korea, and uh, Trump essentially let them off the hook because China was being helpful um, with North Korea policy ahead of the uh, the Singapore summit. Um, and so I think, uh, you know, we can tie this all together very neatly, right, which is tariffs, um, buying Iranian oil. Um, I think from the Chinese perspective, they think, well, you know, um, we can trade one for the other. Um, and so I think they're looking at it. They, they will. The Chinese will look at any, any way – uh, to build leverage with the United States um, in order to trade apples for oranges. Um, and so, you know, th there's, there's some hope that we'll end up with some, you know, grand bargain. Um, but, you know, I, I don't see the United States getting a whole lot of benefit at the end of the day from that. Alan Moore, is, is, the, is the Chinese central government, by moving the goalposts on how you acquire the yuan and the deposits required now, is is Donald Trump's policies working? So, so I'm not familiar with the the, the 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 provision you're talking about, but 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 I don't have to be to say we don't know yet. Um, it it's but that in and of itself wouldn't be. I mean, the the, the yuan, uh, <laughs> the, the Chinese government exercises has historically exercised a lot of control over the movement of the yuan. That's been a uh, the whole currency manipulation has been a major complaint against China for a long time. They've moved away from it. They've let it become more of a of a true floating currency, um, and and which, which is which is a, a good thing, uh, just all, all by itself. I don't know about this new item, but you mentioned the the, the Boeing question. And if if they get mad at America, do they just uh, stop buying uh, Boeing aircraft and and, and turn to Airbus? So two things. One. Whenever you buy airplanes, you buy them years in advance, and you put money down, and you pay as they're being provided, and it's very hard to get out of those deals. But more important with regard to China, every Boeing airplane that goes, it, 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 that, that goes to a Chinese airline has major elements and components 
that were fabricated in China. This is one of this, this big issue of, of them uh, utilizing their economic leverage to sort of steal our, our uh, intellectual property, our manufacturing capabilities. We go there, we help them set up factories to build component parts so they know exactly how different pieces of this are, are put together. And then, of course, later when they have a plane, they can go, they can go uh, re- uh, 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 re-engineer everything and, and, and learn everything that, 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 <laughs> that we know about putting one of these planes together. Now, I, I mention that because none of this opens itself to quick pivots. Soybeans is a different matter. That's a commodity. Uh, uh, a Boeing 777 is not a commodity, but soybeans are. And if there are excess soybeans elsewhere in the world, um, they the the and, and American soybeans all of a sudden cost 25% more than they used to, um, and they can get Brazilian soybeans for 5% more than they used to pay for uh, American soybeans. They're going to start buying from Brazil. Having said that, they don't want to mess up the U.S. markets so badly that right. they run farmers out of business because down the road, everybody is hoping and kind of guessing that this stuff will come back to some kind of equilibrium. This was the, the president's complaint at, at uh, Harley-Davidson when Harley said, good God, we're going to have to start making more uh, motorcycles in, in, in Europe. Um, uh, because of, of the damage of the president's tariffs, and he jumped down their throats and said, be patient, be a little bit patient. You're going to win in the long run, but don't bail out on us now. So that's the mindset. That's where the, you know, this president is so transactional, right. transactional in his thinking. It says, oh, trade deals, they're easy. Well, they're not easy. Um, and, and, uh, but he thinks they're easy, and he thinks we apply a bunch of pressure, we yell and scream right. and squeeze, they make a few concessions, we declare victory, and go back to the status quo ante with a few little marginal changes. Maybe, maybe, but not necessarily. And that's the, that's the problem with this president. Right. Well, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, and uh, first of all, I want to thank David Mortlock. David Mortlock from Wilkie Farr and President Obama's former economic security advisor, David, thanks as always for joining us. Always appreciate your insight. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Justin. You got it. And yeah, thanks, uh, when, we, yep. when we come back, we are going to talk about Russia because we haven't talked about Russia this week. Uh, this is Backroom Politics Live from Washington, D.C. and Parts Abound on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us.
backroom politics. And we're back with the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio from Washington, D.C. Joining me from New York, Sharmila Chari from Florida, Admiral Ken Carradine, and from Northern Virginia, the Honorable Alan Moore. Hey, uh, we haven't talked about Russia this week, so guess what? It's time to talk Russian collusion 2018. Hey, let me give you a scenario. Big, powerful Republican type brings under his wing this intern, and the relationship grows and blossoms, and turns out that the mentor and the mentee are colluding in criminal activities, and the mentee becomes the partner of the mentor, and they steal money from each other and openly put out in emails that they're conducting criminal activities. You'd think that that was a comedy movie, right? A script from some sort of weird Sasha Baron Cohen. That is exactly what we're seeing in the trial. Or that's what's being uncovered in the trial of Paul Manafort. By the way, Paul Manafort version one. There's still version two in DC he's got to deal with. But in the financial crimes one, it, it, it is, the only word I can think of is comically epic. Sharmila. Please tell me that as you look at this, you go, hold on, this this can't be real. I mean, it's pretty hilarious. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. My, my, my sense of schadenfreude has really rocketed up in the last few days. But, but this is what you get when you associate with criminals, right? It's, it's not surprising that Rick Gates... Knowing the extent of what Paul Manafort is accused of, it's not surprising that his second command was also second in command was also completely dirty and was grifting the grifter. This should not come as a shock to anyone. I mean, the thing about it is, it, 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 it's it is so odd, Alan Moore. When we see the details coming out of this, I mean, Alan, did you ever think that? Part of Washington political intrigue would include the phrase ostrich jacket. <laughs> and don't forget the ostrich vest. The ostrich vest, too. That's right. And the yes. python jacket. And the pythons and the lizard. There's a 48,000 lizard yeah. jacket, too. Be my <laughs> vest. Be my vest. It's authentic gorilla chest. <laughs> <laughs> Dan Litter. Um, I just had one question. What's that? I I and I'm gonna I'm gonna take the the uh, the part of a Trump supporter. What does this have to do with collusion? Dan Lipner, you want to answer that one for us? Well, see, I'm gonna do away with the word collusion entirely. Nope, nope, can't do that. And just can't go do with that. the word conspiracy because you kind of can't have a conspiracy without colluding for some part. And once you enter a a, crim- a criminal enterprise, it's a conspiracy. And Donald Jr. saying <laughs> inexplicably that, uh, yeah, no, there was no talk of uh, uh, of Russian adoption. This was about opposition wait. research. Yeah, but wait, That's wait, wait. wait. Dan, 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 wait, 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 wait. I think Ken's question is, what does the financial crimes case in Alexandria, Virginia federal court have to deal with 
any sort of conspiracy or collusion between the Trump campaign and and I'm not well, just asking think... that, and, and I'm not just asking that question because I've landed right smack in the middle of Trump country down here, and I have. You have. You're going to make America great again, have it right now, aren't you, Cap? No, that'll never happen. Um, but but well, what I will but what I will say is that you know I think part of the, the the beauty of our show is that if you are a Trump supporter, if you are a non-Trump supporter, you should be able to glean some rationality and some logic away from it. And I think that we need to be very careful in how we basically tie this together because too many of these people that, that, that we run into out there are quick to basically say this has nothing to do with collusion. And, uh, and, and this has everything to do with what the president is saying is a witch well, hunt. It's the only reason Dan, that Paul Manafort's up there right now. That's the only point let's I'm let the attorneys, Let's let the lawyers discuss it. First Dan, then Sharma. Let's not, ju- let's not leave others out. I want the lawyers first. Ken makes a reasonable point. So uh, let, let us go down the road for the sake of argument, and, but also including the, what the actual mandate for uh, the, 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 the special counsel is, and that was to pursue all crimes related to this, or related to the Russia investigation. So, Assuming for the sake of argument that people did not just have some interest in Russia because they liked Russia, <laughs> so which is – I suppose it's possible that both Manafort and Donald Trump and, and the, the rest of the Trump lackeys really are aficionados of the state of Russia, and they are proponents of forwarding, forwarding Russia's interests without regard to money. That said, I don't think that's the case. I think this entire case has to do with money and where, where the money is flowed. Hence, the look into Manafort's money, where he got it, and the how he spent it was mostly amusing, but it can also go into the state of mind, what people's interests are. And in this case, the the... Paul Manafort seems to have a thing for shiny things or leathery things, in as is the case here. Dead animal so, hides. Animal hides, and so being able, being willing to do almost anything, including sell out the United States for money for his own financial interest, is part of the argument. So that's the the macro argument beyond just this case that is being conducted in Virginia. If all of that is true and Paul Manafort is found guilty, then there are additional dominoes that start falling. Where else was that money spent? Where did that money come from? Who else that spent that money on Paul Manafort spent money on other things? Enter Donald Jr. The opposition research, that costs money. We already know the Trumps like tiny things see only reference point to the gold leaf everything associated with the word Trump. Taking that in addition to the simple fact that this is now a per se violation of law. The taking an in-kind gift and not reporting it, so leaving out the foreign national element, taking that in-kind gift of opposition research Anyone who's worked on a campaign will tell you not only costs money, it costs 
a lot of money. Also noting that some of that dirt that's come out since, while that connect, the connection has not been made directly to the Trump folks, we do know the Russians distributed information that was gotten illegally. Also a problem. So you have a, a conspiracy potentially before and or after the fact for that theft of information. So this stuff all begins to connect pretty quickly. All right. Throw in the foreign national element, or not even foreign national, the actual foreign state actor, it's absolutely a crime, not only to, to use this information, but to solicit it. Well, it's also That's a crime a to do so. Yeah, but, but here's, here's where – here's what pulled the string on it, Dan, was it's illegal to do it and represent and get paid for representing the interests of a foreign government without registering with your own government that you are doing said uh, pontification for said foreign government. That makes you a foreign agent, and that's why they have the Foreign Agent Registration Act, or FARA, which is what is... This is is true, which is why why Mike Flynn is is having his legal issues that he's already pled guilty to. Right. But here's the thing. Here's... It wasn't that he didn't register as a foreign agent under Farah, which we know he didn't do, and that's the D.C. case. Right. This – I mean, I have to ask this question, and let me preface it. It has been, it has been documented in court, and there are several folks that have testified that when Paul Manafort would go get his suits, he didn't have the cash to get his suits so they would do wire transfers from Russian and Ukrainian banks to the tailor. Correct. When was the last this... time you paid for a pack of gum with an international wire transfer, Justin? Exactly. It happened on Tuesday. Does, does this make this duo the dumbest criminals in Washington? I mean, Michael Cohen goes to Washington sometimes, so... Probably not. <laughs> but, you know, they come pretty close. But I mean, I mean, I, sure. what, what, to, to Dan's point earlier and, and to, to Admiral Ken's question earlier, I think that the way, to, to put it to the layman, the way this ties to collusion is you look at the fact that, and I think when a lot of Trump supporters and when Fox News talks about collusion, they immediately jump to the conclusion that that means that the president or one of his immediate family members was involved in, you know, was was conspiring with the Russians to to out- affect the outcome of the election. However, as Dan pointed out, the collusion inquiry extends to the Trump campaign. Who was the head of the Trump campaign for four months? Paul Manafort. Who worked for the Trump campaign for free for four months? Paul Manafort. Therefore, I think it's easier to make a link to say, look. This trial goes into Paul Manafort's financial dealings and exposes kind of the the depth of his financial situation to the degree that he was, you know, he had lost a lot of credibility with his former backers, his, you know, Ukrainian Russian oligarch friends, and had then come to the Trump campaign offering his services for free, hoping that he would be on the winning ticket and then be able to steer a lot more business 
to his former friends and kind of recoup some of the money that he lost for them and recoup some of the credibility that he used to have with them in terms of his his influence business. And so that's where I think you see a, a stronger motivation and a stronger case for collusion coming forward, saying that even if it was not President Trump or one of his family members, such as you know Donald Trump Jr. or Jared Kushner, actually guiding this collusion or participating in this collusion, you can still make a very valid case that the Trump campaign and many members of it were actively participating in conspiracy to work with the Russians to influence the outcome of the election. So, first of all, Dan, are you going to say the word conspiracy every time somebody says the word collusion? Yes, because we need to okay, stop just wanna... using the word collusion. It, it, right, it, it is now an incorrect statement, and if, to, to Ken's point, the, the Trumpies that are hung up on well, collusion's not a crime, right? Conspiracy is, and them understanding there is actual law at play here, and it's not a semantic game. It matters, so we need to stop using the word collusion, since it gives them a hiding ground where it doesn't belong. So every so. You're going to correct everybody. Every time you hear the word collusion on the air, you're going to say conspiracy. conspiracy. Yeah, there I we agree. go. Okay. Thank you. Thank Alan you. Moore. This, well, this, this, I, I'm trying to figure out. This has been kind of a mess. I think Ken's question was simply the current Manafort trial. What does that have to do? And, and, Dan got off pretty far afield. He made some representations about per se violations of the law, which nice try, Dan, not established. Um, uh, maybe, maybe not, but we can come back to that. The, the Manafort trial in Virginia is basically uh, a tax evasion case, which, as Sharmila accurately points out, could if it's established and it's not looking real good for Manafort and Gates, good God, who wants that guy on your team? Um, uh, has they've jointly stolen money? Uh, well, Gates has stolen money from Manafort. Manafort has hidden uh, income with a peer, uh, pretty powerfully, from uh, from the U.S. government and from the Virginia government. Um, and that's against the law and appears likely to have committed some fraud along the way in filing tax returns and in gaining some loans. That speaks that, to, as Shamala said, that speaks to... Let me actually use Admiral Ken. Well, hang on. Let, you guys all talk and talk and talk. Just let, let me... Let, let, me, let, let me... Let me... So, so we have this tax case and they provided all this detail so we understand how big a hole he had dug for himself, which brings us to the Shamala point about his motivation while he was running the campaign. Why work for nothing? Why say he's not interested in a future job? Why have all these conversations with the Russians? Well, it appears, and we'll learn more about this in the case in D.C. coming up in a month or two, um, uh, how desperate he was to try to reestablish himself with the money people in the Ukraine who, uh, and in Russia who were, who were paying the freight and then, and then cut him off. And whether or not 
the president was in on this conspiracy um, uh, remains to be seen. Whether or not Donald Trump Jr. was involved in a conspiracy or conspiracy-like behavior um, remains to be seen. Right now, the focus is on Paul Manafort, four months chairman of the campaign, who clearly was talking to the Russians, who clearly was involved at the convention in some changes to the Republican platform, softening some language relating to the Ukraine. He was compromised, and whether he was involved in a conspiracy to help get Trump elected or simply behavior that was where he was attempting to feather his own nest or re- reestablish his position remains to be seen. But that's why there's, you know, the, the two parts to it, even though the behaviors started uh, 10, 12 years ago, I think in 2006, the reason it's important we, was because it helps us understand the Manafort mindset when he joined the Trump campaign and while he worked on the Trump campaign and the, in the in the second trial, we'll learn more about his behavior vis-a-vis uh, the Russians. With regard to Dan's point about per se violations of the law, there are two schools of thought on whether the meeting they had where they thought they were going to collect some meetings is in fact a violation of the law or not. That may well get tested, but let's not just announce that it's a per se violation. Let's acknowledge that there are two sides to that question and some fairly powerful arguments on both sides, and that will have to be litigated down the road. Right, but 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 but, okay. he, but here's so, okay. Dan, let me jump in. Let me jump in. Down that legal primer. No, no, this is oh, an important an important point. Admiral Ken. Right. So, Admiral Ken, for people yeah. with financial difficulties, are they often given security clearances? No. Why? Because they could be um, compromised. Uh, they could be uh, compromised. Thank you. Okay. So, hence the the extravagant lifestyle of Paul Manafort, in addition to his financial difficulties, and going down the legal primer road that we're talking about, the to be guilty of a crime, you must also have requisite mens rea. What does mens rea mean? Mens rea means your state of mind or your criminal intent. So, the intent I learned that from Legally here. Blonde, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do a show off, Dan. Just cut to the chase. You're talking in riddles, man. Uh, uh, that's got to be the quote of the year, man. Shamo, that's got to be the quote of the year. Dan, okay, Dan. We appreciate your imitation of Alan Dershowitz, but we need you to close out your thought on this one so I can get to other things. Hey, but, but, hey, at the moment, I'm a better lawyer than Alan Dershowitz based on everything I've seen him talking about on this case. Okay, but okay, keep going. You got about another 10 <laughs> seconds before I put you on mute. You're losing ground, Dan. You're losing so, ground, so the man. Point, the point is everything – Paul Manafort's intent was money, and everything that stems from that – and the trier of fact in Virginia that is that is prosecuting Paul Manafort at the moment 
if he is found guilty, is not only guilty of the actions, but having the guilty intent for hiding this for no other reason than he wanted to feather his own bed. He wanted more money in his pocket. That is going to be a damning step for all future cases. Look, look here's the bottom line. From an investigator's standpoint, okay, I, I have to admit what, what Paul what, – what, what, what Robert Mueller is doing here is just absolute criminal investigation genius. What he's doing is, I mean, he puts, he puts the financial crimes where arguably one could say that that's just a touch point in the financial or political conspiracy involving a key player in the Trump camp, which brings in the Trump Tower meeting, which we'll talk about in a second, which brings in the top leadership, the campaign, and the infamous, if you're listening, Russia talk. What what Mueller is doing here is connecting the dots for the entire world to see. We, Alan, Alan's right. We do not know what is going to happen. What we're talking about here are financial crimes that deal with the illegal transfer of money in documented Russian and Ukrainian banks to Super, the chairman Cyprus Bank. of Cyprus the, banks. I'm, I'm sorry. Let me rephrase. Ukrainian the and, Cyprus. Yep. Yeah, but the, but the funds originally were deposited from. <laughs> Ukrainian and Russian banks and Ukrainian and Russian sources, according to the documents that they're playing with in Virginia. But regardless, that money trail shows a direct correlation to Manafort, who had direct ties to the campaign, which if he brings them in now, is it the dumbest conspiracy ever Created by man? Yes. Is it a conspiracy nonetheless? Of course it is. But Manafort knows that this goes to the highest level. No, 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 no. Sorry. He did all of that stuff before he got there. What's that? We don't. He he did those things before he joined the Trump campaign. He was in desperate financial need. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, just agreed. be careful of the second, use of the word conspiracy, because typically we're talking second, about conspiracy with the Russians. Okay. No, wait, 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 wait. The second he, okay, was the second he was a party to a willing participant for, and helped even in some instances, uh, even. Uh, create the meeting notices for some of these Russian opposition research meetings. The second he brought that in and tied those parties together and they agreed to it, it becomes a conspiracy. Sharmila, Dan, check my math on that. Is that close? Anytime there's another party, it was already a conspiracy, but yes, you're still correct. Thank you. Thank you. Now, are, do we can we call it legally a conspiracy? No. All I'm saying is, all I'm saying is, there's a. I'm making the distinction between a conspiracy with the Russians to get Trump elected, versus a conspiracy to try to feather his own financial nest by 
uh, these interactions. That's that's, that's the assumption I make. We've, we've asked the Trump elected. Let's just go with the conspiracy to commit the crimes. The the elected was a ancillary benefit, but the crimes, yeah, that's the where the conspiracy is. But but that's but that's the brilliance of what Robert Mueller's doing, though. I mean, even what we said, and, and Alan, comes- Alan and Ken. I mean, Ken, you're probably going to get pushed back if anybody down in your neck of the woods is listening to this. They're just gonna they're just gonna beat you with logs. No, they're not. They're not. No. <laughs> I, I also I also I also uh, validated my Florida. I I also validated my concealed carry is still good. We're good. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> but but what I'm saying is, if you look at what if you look at what Robert Mueller is doing is. This is pure investigative genius that ties everything together, locks down everybody, and by doing it in separate cases, has court precedent to say, well, you can call me a liar, you can call my team corrupt, but I've got juries of peers in courts. Now, unless you're invalidating our American judicial system, i got court cases that say what I'm bringing forward is truth. The justice. You have to admit, Alan, that's pretty smart and brilliant legal maneuver. You know, I I I, I think they've had a, a, a decent case. They've got some special challenges with this judge that that I don't understand. That I would love for somebody to explain uh, some of his behavior. But but uh, we haven't seen the prosecution. I don't think I don't think they got their chance. I mean, the defense go at Gates yet. This guy is such a scumbag. Because he was not only uh, the the Manafort partner, but was also stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars from Manafort, that the the defense is gonna is gonna try to tear him apart and challenge his credibility as a witness. I don't know how that's gonna go. I I don't think it's gonna change the the uh, the ultimate outcome, but they're gonna be doing their very best. To totally undercut but, Gates and argue that, that that Gates was the guy calling the shots. It doesn't work for me, but I'm I'm not going to guess yeah. at, at what uh, twelve jurors are going to decide on this uh, on that particular but, point because Gates is 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 an acknowledged thief from his partner. But here's the here's but here's the thing is, it would be one thing if the case hinged on the testimony of a noted scumbag like Gates. It would be one thing if it was a scumbag said versus scumbag said between Manafort and Gates. This, the Virginia case, the federal case that's in uh, Alexandria court now is a paper case. That, I mean, the paper case, paper doesn't lie. They basically have U.S. attorneys going, Does, is this accurate? Yes, it is. The jurors got a, I, I, I mean, let me ask Dan. Dan, do you see any way the U.S. attorney's office and the Mueller team blow this conviction? The answer is anything's possible. And it, but seemingly on everything that's been reported thus far, the only way Manafort wins is on a jury nullification, which basically means that the jury, in spite of all the evidence, said we're not going to convict anyway. 
we have seen that before. Uh, most recently in uh, what were the the idiots out out west uh, that <laughs> took over the federal land management building, the BLM uh, building. Yes, keep, yeah, keep going. So that was jury nullification. They did it. It was a violation of law, but the jury refused to convict. That's jury nullification, even though all the facts suggested they did it. It is possible, but I find it highly unlikely that a jury in Northern Virginia is going to go that route. Well, considering it's, considering it's six men, six women, uh, six of them who voted for Trump, six, uh, four who voted for... No, 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 no. No, that what lie, do you mean, that fake news was talked about last week. No. What do that you mean? Was, that did not happen, Justin. We talked about it last week, but it didn't happen. The, the, what the didn't defense happen? wanted – listen, here's what happened. The defense, it sounds really fishy at the time last week, and I, <laughs> I thought if that comes up, i got to jump in. The defense wanted to ask jurors if they voted the judge said, you can't ask that. End of story. So they couldn't even ask if people had voted, much less who they voted for. It didn't happen. And you have confirmation on that. I Laura that confirmed it on the show. It, 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 it made total craziness. It, it sounded like total craziness to me. I thought, I'd never heard of such a thing. I can't imagine that happened. And, and then I went and looked it up, and sure enough, the the defense wanted to ask if you voted, not before. If you voted, the judge says you can't ask it. That's what. That's the only thing that I could find on that whole subject. That's that the only thing you more found. sense to me. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get we'll get confirmation either go, way. Go go check it out. I can't imagine. We will. I, it, we will. Okay. So, we will, but anyway, I have an I have an additional lawyer question. What's that? Um, so uh, much has been spoken uh, in the last twenty four to forty eight news hours about the president's uh, concerns about sitting down with a face to face interview with Robert Mueller, and one of the reasons that his lawyers are pushing back, and I heard that, heard this as late as this morning, and, and read it as late as this, this afternoon was that they don't want the president to fall into a perjury trap, quote, perjury trap. Now, as someone who has never had uh, been on the wrong side of a law uh, uh, incident and have only associated with lawyers loosely, in, including Dan, um, and I do mean loosely where Dan's concerned, um, <laughs> uh, Thank God. I, I, have a, I have a very philosophical attitude toward perjury. My attitude is if you tell the truth, you can't get in trouble for perjury. So can we talk just a moment or two about what a perjury trap is and is not and why the president should be worried about it? Sure. Dan? I'll let some... Dan? So, so yeah, so the, the, the perjury trap is when you speak to a federal investigator, and this is true across the board, why I advise all of my friends and occasionally clients as well, Anytime a federal investigator wants to question you, immediately request a lawyer. Because if you lie to a federal investigator, it is a crime. Mm-hmm. Period. Yeah. Agreed. So the only way out of that is the, well, I didn't remember it at the time. I misremembered it. And so there's a whole lot of uncertainty that you have to go down that road in order to get past that perjury trap. 
episode, think Martha Stewart. In multiple investigations, uh, she answered different questions in different ways uh, during the course of the – or the same question in different ways during the course of the investigation. Oops, you now have your own words condemning you. Unfortunately for this president, at least on the public record, he frequently flips on his own words, sometimes daily, sometimes within two tweets, he flips on his own words. So the worry for the Donald's lawyers is the president is not good enough or smart enough to actually maintain the same statements, or I will be as bold, so bold as to say the same lies, uh, between one conversation and another conversation, or even from the beginning of the deposition to the end of the deposition, thus creating the perjury trap for the president. Further, when he's exposed to actual questions of substance, imagine the, the Mueller investigators will not show up with documents saying, do you remember this? Do you remember that? Did you say this? Did you not say this? There's a horrible series of choices the president will have to make. He'll have to either confirm those items or say he doesn't remember them or has or a different memory of those events. It's possible to go down those roads. However, this president most certainly has foot and mouth disease and could very well end up confirming something, the, yes, I did that, and thus having to refute it later on. Now you have a problem. Were you lying then or are you lying now? That's where the perjury trap comes in. Uh, Sharmila, I will defer to you if, 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 if you have any disagreement with that. Well, Sharmila is not on the line. She had to drop off earlier, but thanks for pointing that out for us, Dan. Um, <laughs> let's go on and talk about – let's go on and talk about yeah, – can, can I just add two sentences to that? So oh, to, sure. So, Why so not, Ken, Alan? We know, we know this president says things that are not true constantly, but he, he never says them under oath. Once he goes in and is deposed and says something under oath, then it becomes the fodder for, for perjury. The, he is so undisciplined and so exaggerates, and as Dan accurately points out, so subject to just turning in the moment one sentence to the next, he's just uh, an, an accident waiting to happen, and right. his lawyers are absolutely no. uh, afraid of what he might do to himself. Right. Now, as the only investigator on this panel, I will tell you that this Trump is ex is the textbook definition for perjury trap. This is exactly the guy that you want to put on into a room with a stenographer and start asking him official investigative questions because this guy will either perjure himself or he's going to let loose the whole shebang either way it's a win-win for the investigators uh also but worth noting that paul yeah. manafort cut his teeth going after the mob and the mr gates while an unsavory character i am certain paul manafort excuse me not paul manafort um muller robert muller uh, robert muller uh investigative history he's more than comfortable putting one unsavory character statement against another unsavory character statement. So, yeah, he, he has some experience with this. He's the Rico God. 
He is the Rico God. This is like, you know what? Here's the funny thing is, I'm, I would almost like to see Rico charges brought up on this, but we have yet, we have yet to do that. We are still a ways away from seeing that big of a conspiracy. Anyway, uh, let's talk about the president's tweets and the Trump Tower meeting. Um, Alan Moore, if you're a Republican and you are a Republican member of Congress and you are going into midterms and you are worried about the, the ability for the president to stop promoting the fact and tickling the idea that there might be cons- uh, uh, a, a real big case for obstruction of justice, do you not go to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue and beg him to give up the Twitter account? Well, <laughs> I think I think people have, um, including his daughter and and uh, chief of staff and and probably his wife. Who knows? Um, and and everyone has thrown up their hands and and walked away. He uh, he he seems to have this. Com- Impulsive, compelling need to react, react in the moment, and react uh, uh, to the country. Um, apparently, there's a there's a group of people who he trusts who send him ideas for treats. Uh, sorry, for tweets as well. It's not just him. He's got a whole team of people who figure that they can ingratiate themselves by giving him an idea. That that, but, uh, that he will then tweet out. But probably wouldn't that make them? Sometime we're going to wouldn't that make them the dumbest? Stories. But wouldn't that make them the dumbest comms team in D.C.? Well, I don't know if it's comms team. You know, I think it's maybe you know some some outside friends, some inside folks, uh, a golf buddy perhaps. Of the world, you, you know, golf buddies. Sure, why not? Hey, <laughs> hey, Mr. <laughs> President, how about this? Um, uh, or they just they 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 shoot him a link and then he shares it. Um, but but it, it is just absolutely staggering what the, the the damage that he appears to do to himself. Although his loyal followers, uh, even some of them say, "I wish he wouldn't tweet as much." But by and large, they overlook the tweets. They say even even last week when he said, you know, I I, I want Secretary Attorney General Sessions to to fire Rosenstein, and then his spokespeople have to go out and say he's he's entitled to his personal views. That's not a direct order. Um, I mean, oh no, it's the difference between he must or should. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's it, it, it. On the one hand, they have a point. Um, on the other hand. What kind of a president, what kind of a leader of any organization of any size is right. that reckless and undisciplined um, uh, that, that their people are out there constantly having to explain what, uh, what uh, the true meaning behind right. a tweet, a comment? Uh, right. It's just nuts. And all right, well, with that, I'm going to let that be the last word. Uh, oh, oh, before, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I said last one of those tweets. Is subject to is going to be subject to deposition when the president confirmed the meeting occurring when he's deposed. The question is going to be: Did you write this tweet? If he says no, okay, we can check that. There are digital records on that. If he says yes, great. 
So you're admitting this thing is screwed, and then your boy's in trouble. Okay, that's a problem. But so so he the president admitted this months ago, and I have been very confused as to why it was so much news in in the recent days when he basically said what he finally under pressure and in the midst of other evidence to the contrary uh, um, many months ago. Having said that, by saying and what we did was legal, that of course triggered the whole question that prompted Dan to say it was that. It, it's not legal. It's a per se violation. The one thing I wanted to right. add to that was that somebody had pointed out that that uh, if that's illegal to take a meeting that 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 comes to you to go listen to some stuff, it's incredibly stupid. Let's acknowledge if you get here from a foreign government, you want to call in the FBI, but and you certainly don't want any of your principals to have that meeting. And if you want to hear what those people have to say, you find a third party to do it. Now, who does that sound like? That sounds like a presidential candidate whose campaign hired a a foreign national, had that foreign national go talk to Russians, perhaps give them some money, who knows, gather data, and violate the same notion, the same principle. What presidential campaign? What presidential campaign? What presidential campaign? In the steel dossier, wait a minute. Are you accusing? Wait, 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 wait. Alan Moore. It's the same concept. It's the same concept. Are you accusing? Wait a minute. Are you accusing the Clinton campaign of taking their taking their money and using it in conspiracy with the Russians? I'm saying. There's a, no, 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 there's no, no. A, there's a, I, I, I see where Alan's going with this. I'm and, saying there's a challenging parallel here between the accusation that it's a per se violation for Donald Trump Jr. to take a meeting with some Russians to hear what they have to say. It's a, it's, it's a powerful parallel for what the, what the Clinton campaign did, hiring the, the a Brit. This guy it, Steele, it, 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 who, it, it, who, it, it, a Brit who went talking to the Russians <laughs> and getting information from them. So it, it's an awkward subject, but wait, wait, I don't wait, think one wants to assume that either one of those I will mute every single one of you. I got four minutes left. Okay, <laughs> we're not even going to get to the golden parachute pool on this one. So that everybody, yeah, you guys want to bring this up. We can bring this up next week because it's not like this subject's going away. But uh, you can't leave it there. Listen, there's a distinct difference. For, it, that, the Dan, I will give you money for it. You forced me to do it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm, I'm muting both Alan and Dan because they don't know when to listen to the moderator. I'm taking privilege. Okay, that being said, are you done? Are you too done? Are you too done? I was done. Okay, Dan, are you done? You left the last word misstating the law and the facts. Dan, I'm going to put you back in time. I got to put him back in time. Okay. And by the way, Alan, I love your accusation. Four minutes left in the show, and you dropped that hand grenade. And by the way, for our listeners, this is what happens with your conservative brain on drugs. 
Just letting you know. No, no. <laughs> I, I'm not dropping the accusation. I'm saying there's a parallel. Okay. There's a parallel. Okay. Think about it. That being said, by the way, this is exactly why the, we have to get back in the studio because I would love to see this in person. And B, uh, it, 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 this is why it's the best political talk show anybody's ever never heard of. That being said, on behalf of Dan Lipner, Dan, say goodnight, Gracie. Goodnight, Gracie. Thank you. And on behalf of Dan Lipner, Alan Moore, Admiral Ken, our uh, Audrey, I forgot to bring you on because you know what, Audrey, we always love saying hi to you. Uh, did anyone win last week? No. No, nobody won. Everyone still has a job at the White House. Okay, very good. Thank you. That's all I need. And on behalf of Audrey Harrington, our associate producer in an undisclosed location in Cape Cod, I'm your host and moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back next week for the best political talk show you've never heard of, Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. By the way, be sure to follow Audrey's From the Cutting Room Floor, her her daily post. It is daily, right? It is. Audrey? It is. Daily? It will be out. Okay. Mainly. You can also follow that on our website. You can get the RSS feed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politics. Follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Backroom Politic Radio. You can also follow us on all of the major, now, all of the major podcasting services, including iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn Radio, and Spotify now, apparently. We will be back next week. Have a great week, America. Take care. Bye-bye. This is Backroom Politics. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.